a very powerful passage of scripture. I want to bring to you a message entitled, Who Should Lead the Church? It's found in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, and Alan read that for us. Let's um, let's take just a moment and uh, pray again over this scripture. Father, these are your words. They have been established for all people in all time, in all of creation, in every culture, in every tongue, in every corner of the universe. You have said that these men should lead your church, men who are above Reproach. Who are family men first. Moral men first. Able to teach first. And beside these qualifications, we have no other mandate. There's nothing else that we're to look for. Lord, help Grace Fellowship to only recognize the leadership of men who match these qualifications. Guard them from searching and seeking out men who would fulfill worldly expectations. And, oh God, please help me and the elders of this church, both now and in the future. Help us, for without your grace we would fail miserably. And without your continued love and hand on our person, our families, and the ministry which you've given us, it would be for nothing. It would be a waste. We would have run in vain. We'd be disqualified even. And so, Lord, we come to you at the beginning of this message and ask you, root these words in our heart Make them a very grid, literally, for finding leaders. Jesus, this is for your namesake. This is for the protection of your gospel from now and forevermore. May we be faithful because you have been faithful to us. And when we fail, may we be quick, quick to confess and beg repentance so we might continue to serve only by your grace. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. We live in an age of uh, low standards for leadership. That's not just a problem in the church. That's a problem in the whole society in which we live. Many of you know that some of our greatest leaders, from a worldly standpoint, they're in the highest positions. And I'm not going to name any of them, but there are so many who hold great office in our day. President, congressman, governor, senator, who do not meet the qualifications of leadership. They hold a title, they fill an office, they may do some administrative work, but they are not leaders. We've seen it vividly on our TV screens, in our newspapers, just over the last few years. 
And it shouldn't be shocking to us that the morals of our leaders are now being passed down to the common man on the street. The slide into debauchery and worldliness and lewdness and sexual sin is becoming so obvious and rampant among us. And we shouldn't be surprised because when we look up the chain of leadership, it's rampant there. Our, la- our nation is literally being destroyed from within. And it's not the first time, and it won't be the last time, that a culture has ceased to exist because it fell out of moral standing. I would cite to you the Roman Empire, the greatest empire in all of world history, which ceased to exist, not because of an external enemy, but because they were morally bankrupt and they fell apart from inside. That is our culture. We're in Titus. That was Titus' culture on Crete. Morally fallen, corrupt men were leading the society. They were lazy gluttons and liars, Paul would say. And he was just quoting one of their own prophets, right? No, don't misunderstand. Paul wasn't slinging mud at them. He was just saying, this is what you say about yourself. And I say, it's true. I've been there. It's, it's the case. But not only is our culture failing, our churches are failing. Our churches are failing in large part because our leaders are failing. And no one is above it. No man, no group of men, no church. Grace Fellowship is in danger of falling apart if the leadership of the church becomes morally reprehensible or if the leadership of the church becomes less than the biblical standard, grace fellowship will fail. It will fail. Maybe not immediately. Maybe it will continue to exist in some form, but it will fail in, in terms of God's standard for us. And so as we move into verses 5 through 9, these are serious verses. And yet, these qualifications do not make the top ten list of the pulpit committees which rove around the countryside looking for a pastor for the church. Some of you have served on pulpit committees. And you know that these are not the qualifications that are looked for. Not only are they not on the top ten list, they're not even in the minds of those who are looking for a leader for the church. And I would say that it's great concern. It's a concern for me in my own life. And it's a concern should be for Grace Fellowship, for our leaders. And it should be a concern for the church at large. But it's not necessarily a concern and it's not the top ten most favorite things to look for in a leader. It's rather mundane in our minds and taken for granted that these men will be these things. I I really believe that. Then most people think, well, he's surrendered to the ministry. He's a godly man. They just assume it rather than searching it out and digging to the root of that man's life 
to see whether he is qualified or not. It's just assumed. I'm not saying that they go out to find somebody that doesn't match these characteristics. I'm saying they go out looking for a man assuming he already meets these qualifications. But we shouldn't assume it. You shouldn't assume that about me. And you should not assume that about Aaron. And you should not assume that about Carlton or about any other man in the future who might be a leader and elder in this church. Don't assume that we are above reproach. Do not assume that we are family men. Do not assume that we are moral in our character. Don't assume those things. And don't assume that because we were last year, we are this year. Don't assume it. A man that's fit for the pastorate today may not be tomorrow. And so this is a call for the church. You say, well, this is all about leadership. I mean, you know, what good's that for me? I'm not an elder. I'm not a deacon. I'm not in any leadership at this church. You are the grid that we, that we must pass through as leaders. You are the safety net, the protectors of the gospel. You're the ones commissioned by God to see our lives and know whether we meet these qualifications or not. So it's for leaders that we preach this message and for the church. And we've had great examples of men in the church history who have, who have by God's grace, met these standards. And, you know, I always am talking about biography. You might think that that's just some personal thing with me, but actually Hebrews 13 commands us to be readers of biography. It says that we are to respect and revere the lives of those who've led us in the Word. How will we respect and revere them if we don't read about them and hear about them regularly? And so I, I would even bring to you a biography this morning in introduction to this message. It's a cool front, isn't it? You kids would probably like that. An old man. You probably don't know this man. I didn't know him a few years ago. Robert C. Chapman. Had no idea who this man was. And he now is revered by this pastor because he lived 99 years a single man all of his life. And he is the greatest example of humility and sacrifice that I've ever acquainted myself with in the ministry. Let me just, I don't do this. If you're new with us, you know, you can ask. I don't normally do this. But I just have to show you this. Okay, so I know it's not good preaching for him to read. I understand. I've taken homiletics. I understand this isn't a good thing. But this is worth your attention. And you might not buy the book. So I just want you to hear this. And why am I reading this to you? Because this man meets every qualification and then some of this passage. The old man held the arm of his walking companion as they made their way through the streets of Barnstaple on their daily walk. His short steps held little hint of the rapid gait and long strides of his earlier years when he had traveled the countryside of southwest England. Morning, Mr. Chapman, was a common greeting from the townspeople who met him. Robert Cleaver Chapman followed their greeting with a warm acknowledgement and often 
a portion of scripture. For 70 years, he pastored in the hamlets and villages surrounding Barnstable. With patience and gentleness, he was a servant to those who he led. He said, my business is to love others and not to seek that others shall love me. Were words remembered by one of the many missionaries he had influenced. The word love, which so clings to any account of Chapman's life, refers to an attitude of caring, a giving of himself that marked his long life. He understood the concept of Christian love as few others have. His life illustrated Christ's new commandment that we love one another even as I have loved you. John 13, 34. It was a very, the very heartbeat of true Christianity. Robert Chapman became one of the most respected Christians in the 19th century Britain. He was a lifelong friend and mentor to another great man of the faith, hero of mine, George Mueller, the founder of the large orphanage system at Bristol. Chapman's life also is a testimony that orphan care is not a sideline to the gospel. It is the gospel for the church. He preached it every day Every year of every day as he took people into his home who were in need. And George Mueller, he impacted. And Mueller, we know, took in many. He was an advisor to J. Hudson Taylor who used him as a, ref, a referee for China Inland Missions. His acquaintance, C.H. Spurgeon, called him the saintliest man I ever knew. How would you like Charles Haddon Spurgeon to say that about your life? He is the prince of preachers, the greatest known Baptist minister of all history. And he says, this little brethren minister over there in Barnstaple is the saintliest man I've ever known. An Anglican clergyman wrote after a stay at Chapman's rest home. For the first time, I heard Robert Chapman expound the scriptures deep, called to deep as he warmed to his subject. The impression made on my mind is almost all that I can remember as I took notes. But as his Bible closed, I felt like an infant in the knowledge of God compared with a giant like this. You say, he must have been an eloquent speaker. No. Chapman was a poor preacher. Not very good with words. But his life was excellent. And so his words were excellent. He was a brilliant man from a wealthy family. Chapman could have chosen any number of prestigious paths to follow, yet he chose a life of poverty. He gave away his family fortune. Gave it away. Gave it away. As a young man, he wanted to work and live with poor and uneducated people. And do we see that in our day? How many pastors are leaving the megachurches and saying, I want to go to the poor. I'm headed to the inland mission there uh, in the inner city. I'm going to live in the projects. That's where I'm going to live. I'm going to serve those people. That's what Robert Chapman did. By seeing Christ's love in a person who loved them, they could more readily believe the gospel message. He was an elder in the church of Christ. He was above reproach. Now he goes on and there's many more statements made here. 
But I, I want to say this. Robert Chapman, in closing of this introduction, was a, not a noted order. But he became a good preacher. He was not known as a theologian, but he was a thorough student of the Bible. He was not famous as a hymn writer, but many of his hymns are still sung today. What then made Chapman so beloved and effective in his time? Quite simply, his utter devotion to Christ and his determination to live Christ. These are the driving forces in his life. From these flowed his other attributes, his balanced outlook, and most of all, the love for which he was best known. In return, people loved him, and God honored him with good health, a long life, and inward peace. And that's the introduction to this little short biography that's well worth whatever you pay to get it and read it and digest it and begin to live these truths in your own life. His greatest opponent in the ministry, the man who despised him the most, was in a gathered meeting and Chapman was not even present. And some of the brethren there were bashing this man. They were just putting him down and they were trampling on his good name. And his number one opponent rose up and said, Mind what you say about that man, Chapman. For we speak of the heavenly places. And I tell you, Robert Chapman walks in the heavenly places. And he sat down. And my question is, for myself, would my greatest opponents rise up in my defense to say that I walk in heavenly places? And would your greatest opponents say that about you? These, these are the characteristics of a life committed and submitted to Jesus Christ as elders of the church. This is what they look like. They're odd and different. They're peculiar and they're passionate. And often they're mocked and ridiculed by their own churches. Many, many times in Chapman and Mueller's career, just to name two, where these, these pastors put down by their own church for their radical stances in certain areas of life. They were abused by their own congregations and yet served for years with people who often mocked and laughed at them and ridiculed them. How do we produce leaders like this? Well, I want to submit to you, we do it only by searching out the leaders which God has provided for us based on the characteristics found in the scripture, you can't make a godly leader. God makes a godly leader. And all we do as a church is recognize that godly leader for who he really is. We don't make preachers. God makes preachers and pastors. God makes them. So let's look at this scripture. I've, I've written down the main points for you, so possibly you can follow along in my scattered brain here. The establishment of biblical leaders is the key to strong and faithful churches. Many would say, we just need to get busy about the work. Let's don't worry about leadership. And I would say, without godly biblical leadership, the church is doomed to fail before it even begins. Good. Appointed elders. Appointing elders is the first and primary priority for a church. In verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete. And we might expect him to say, so you might evangelize lost people. Or we might expect him to say, so you might disciple somebody. Or we might expect him to have told Titus, so that you might lead great missionary work. 
And he says, this is why I've left you in Crete, Titus. Be busy about appointing elders in every church. You say, well, that's not evangelistic. And that's not focused on discipleship and missions and the heart of God. And Paul would say, yes, it is. Because without these men in place, the church will not be evangelistic. It will not disciple and it will not be about mission work. This is priority number one for a new church and for any church. Any church, no matter its age. Paul says, this is first priority for you, Titus. Paul left Titus for one purpose. Not to be a personal evangelist, though he was. Not to be a missionary, though he was. Not to even disciple men, which he did. He left him with one purpose. Put elders in place in every city, in every church, in every city. And so we have Paul's exhortation. It shows us it's a priority. Paul had started work, but it needed to be completed. You see what he says there in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained. you see that? What remained? Well, how could it be remaining unless it was already started? Paul started the work. Paul was in Crete, and he began to share the gospel. People began to be saved. He began to organize churches, but he worked very quickly, and I think he moved across the island and then was gone. That was his normal pattern. He left indigenous ministers to work in the church. He didn't stay for a lifetime in one location. He moved all over. He was a pioneer. He was a frontier missionary in a sense. And so he started it, but now he's calling Titus to finish it. Finish the work. Complete it. The issue here is church leadership, and it's crucial to the Cretan church, and it's crucial to our church. If Grace Fellowship fails in the area of leadership, it will fail. You say, that's a strong statement. That's a true statement. It's a true statement. The worldly axiom of our day is people never raise above their leadership. Sheep never lead a shepherd. You might have heard statements like this in your business. You're only as good as your CEO is. You might have heard this taught to you in business practice. That's a biblical principle. The Old Testament said, like priest, like people. So if your priest, if your pastor, if your, if your leadership is morally corrupt, soon the church will be morally corrupt. And I think it goes the other way also. If the reputation of a local body is moral decay and moral failure, then I would say the leadership needs to be examined because it probably is a learned pattern from the leadership. And I say that to you saying, you need to watch me. You need to look at me. I'm not above sin. You need to be close enough to me to see me sin and correct me when I sin in love and care and concern. You need to be close enough to Carlton and to Aaron and to other leaders in this church that you might call them to question if life issues seem to be out of line and priorities seem to be wrong, you need to love us enough to watch for us and care for us. And so we have the appointing of elders is a first priority. But not only appointing elders, but multiple elders, multiple pastor teachers slash elders slash bishops must be appointed in the local church. That's what he says in the last part of verse 5. 
appoint elders in every town as I directed you. You see the plural to the singular. Elders is plural. Town is singular. Now, that's because in their day there was one church for a city. We talked about that in membership class. Membership in a local fellowship is so necessary in our day because there are multiple membership, there are multiple places you could be in this county and in this city. You need to be a part of this fellowship or some fellowship as an active member because that's the only way you'll be held accountable. Otherwise, we might think you just went to another congregation. In their day, that wasn't possible. There was only one church per city, the church of Jerusalem, the church at Antioch, the church at wherever. Now, they met in various houses in various places, but they were one church. And they came together in common. They worshiped together, and they had plural leadership, pastor, teachers, elders, bishops. I went through the commentaries this week just seeing what, what I might find. And do you know that pre-1950, nobody questions the plurality of leadership? Nobody questions that we have more than one pastor in a church. I couldn't find it anywhere. And then in 1950, there became a splinter group, which then began, it was very small, started talking about single pastors, senior pastors. And this type of terminology started creeping into the, into the vernacular. It wasn't there prior to 1950. It ended up being there after 1950. And I, and I, I was really shocked at just how this occurred. But I think it's this sense of professionalism which has creeped into our churches that we hire a man to do these things, and therefore that hireling goes about the work of the ministry. We no longer hold the view of the New Testament church that we are a family, and the leaders are one of us, yet they're examples and forerunners for us, and their lives are exemplary. Their ability to teach is evident, and so they are leading us. Well, it's been a shift in the modern church, but I say it's a bad shift. Look at the word there. You see it translated elder here in verse 5 and in verse 7. It's overseer. But I'm saying it's the same office. Elder comes from the Greek word presbyteros, bishop from episkopos, and pastor teacher from poimen didaskalos. Now, why would I say that? What does it matter? Because many have treated this as if Elders are another rarefied air of leadership, bishops above them. There's some hierarchy. Not in the New Testament. This is the same group of people, pastors, elders, uh, overseers, bishops. Three titles for the same position, the same office. It's no different than when we talk about the president, who is the chief executive, who is also the uh, commander-in-chief. You know, we have several titles for that man. Describes what he does on a daily basis. You as a mother have several titles. Wife, mother, sister. That just describes who you are. You don't have different people for all those roles. Same thing for church leadership. It's not, it's not that there are three types of leaders of the church. There's only one leader, group of leaders. And they're called by these various names. How can we be sure, though? that these are the same people. Don't just take my word for it. Let's see, what does the New Testament say? Well, first of all, they're used together to describe the same office. I said in Titus 1, 5, and 7, Acts 20, 
28. I put it on the screen for you. Paul says to the elders at Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit made you overseers. There's that term bishop overseers to shepherd the church of God. And that's a literal rendering of to care for the church of God, to shepherd it. So here these overseers, Paul saying, you're an overseer, you're a bishop, you're supposed to pastor these people. You see how it's a descriptive of what they are to do and how they're to function in the body? Look at 1 Peter 5. This is my favorite example. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and 2. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the, in the glory that is going to be revealed. You see it. Elders, shepherd, that's the, that comes from the word poimen, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, all three words right here, about the same group of men. Elders, pastors, overseers, the same thing. Now, why don't we use the term bishop any longer for our pastors? Well, because that term has been abused, hasn't it? And when you hear the word bishop, you don't think what the, old, what the New Testament believer thinks. You think of a hierarchy. You think about a guy that's in some higher position over the pastors in a local congregation. But that's our modern problem. That's not the problem of the text. In the New Testament, these three things are the same thing. They're the same group of men. So we have that. They're used commonly together to describe the same office. The terms overseer and elder are used by Paul to communicate similar responsibilities and character to Timothy and to Titus. Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Titus 1, 5 through 9. In one, he calls them elders. In the other, he calls them overseers. In to writing to Timothy, he calls them overseers. Same description, same group of, group of men. The term pastor-teacher is used in Ephesians 4.11 to describe the last group of leaders given to the church. In Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And so you may see, and have already noticed that because our uh, elders desire that I have some type of uh, distinctive title or something, I call myself pastor teacher. Okay? Uh, some might call it teaching pastor. I just use the Ephesians 4.11 thing straight out. Okay? But the reality is Carlton and Aaron are the same as me. We're all equally to be teaching and training you in the Word of God. We're all to be overseeing you as a group of people, not because we're lords and masters, but because we're fallen men leading fallen men. And we're trying to be involved in your life. We are not only to teach you and, and pastor you and oversee you, but we're to be elders among you, sources of, of, of uh, wisdom and truth and the teaching of the Word of God so that you might respect us and come to us with life's issues and we might come to you with life's issues. But that's all three of us. You say, well, you're not the same, though. We are. Practically, we function in some different roles, but we are all equal in our position. And I want to say that's why it's so important we have many of these men in the local church. You say, why? Because it protects me against my ego. I'm a prideful man. I don't know many leaders that are not prideful men. 
It's kind of the way we come pre-wired from the factory. And when you let a man who has pride stand as the superior to everyone else in his congregation, you have set yourself up for utter moral, spiritual, familial failure. Absolute failure. Why? Because you'll be afraid to approach a guy like me who wears a suit, stands up front, and preaches. Well, I can't talk to him. He's a preacher. He knows more than I know. You'll be afraid to challenge me, and you'll be afraid to come to me about issues that are in my life or in your life because I'm better than you. May, may that never be the spirit here among us that we see one man superior to all the others. My desire is that we'd have godly elders overrun this place. I think we have many men who are qualified and in time God will set apart for the tasks of being an elder. May it never be that we view ourselves as better and more superior. Secondly, in this passage, we see that we're biblically qualified elders are men of the highest moral and spiritual character. Not only are they first priority and should they be multiple, not just one single pastor, but we also have that they are spiritual men of moral and spiritual character. The overarching character of the elder is that he is above reproach. That's a catch-all term for everything else that comes underneath, okay? Above reproach. You see it in verse 6, if anyone is above reproach. In verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He repeats it for a reason. It is all important. This is the first and the umbrella characteristic, which all the other things come under. Okay? You say, well, our pastor meets all the qualifications. He's just not above reproach. Then he doesn't qualify. And he probably doesn't meet those little characteristics either if you dig hard enough. Okay? And so we have this above reproach. The word means he's not able to be convicted or apprehended based on the charges of the public. He can't be convicted on it. Some have called this a requirement to be the Teflon man. Nothing sticks. In other words, it's not that the world won't charge him with wrongdoing or even his church members might charge him with wrongdoing. But when those charges are brought public, they have no basis and no validity. When they're put into the light of the truth, it falls away. It's not that he's perfect. It's that he is living a life under the grace of God which is an exemplary life of Christ. It's an example of Christ-likeness. So you say, do they have to be sinless? No, because if they had to be sinless, there'd be no pastors, right? There'd be no pastors. But you, you know whether you are above reproach. I would say every man in here knows right now whether you're above reproach or not. Because when I said that, in your heart you thought, well, there'd be that group of people over there that would be able to hurl accusations that would stick because of what I did here or there. And it's not single instances which we're investigating. It's a life. A man may lose his temper one time and then repent and be broken over that. And I'll tell you, the charge of him being an angry man would not stick because they, somebody brought that up and said, well, he lost it. I saw him lose his temper down there at the hardware store the other day. He's not fit. And everybody would say, well, you know what? He repented of that. 
He's very sorry for it, and it's not the character of this man's life. Here's four or five references. Go check him out. He's above reproach. If you're visiting with us or if you're, if you're a member here, I'm telling you, it's our responsibility as fellow believers to watch the lives of our leadership and see whether they meet these qualifications. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach. What are some Old Testament examples quickly? Noah, Job, righteous men in their day, Abraham, Moses, and Samuel. And you might say, well, none of them were perfect. And you get the point. They weren't perfect. But in their generation, they stood out. In their culture, they stood out as men who were following after God. Their very character stood out. The, elders must be a, the elder must be a man of impeccable moral character. We see this in verse 6 through 8. Family qualifications. What must this man be? These are, these are the controversies, okay? I, 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 this may ruffle you a little. All right, and if it does, I'm glad, and you give it some thought, and we'll talk about it, all right? But we're going to go through it. The husband of one wife. We say what this is not. It's not dealing with polygamy. That was not a common practice in the New Testament day. It was not common. That'd be like saying, Paul saying, you must not be a cannibal. Well, that's a good thing not to be, but that's not a problem here. Nobody's eating humans, okay? And they weren't polygamists in Paul's day either. Not requiring marriage. This qualification does not require man to be married. Paul himself was not married and he is an elder. Along with Peter in the church. It's not a requirement that a man be married. R.C. Chapman was never married. Not a a forbidding of a widower. In other words, if your wife dies, it doesn't mean you've got to quit the ministry. Well, my wife's dead. I've got to quit now. That's not what this means, husband of one wife. It does not mean that you are automatically set out and, and, and can't be involved in the eldership if you've been divorced. That's not what this passage is talking about. Okay? So what does it mean? What does it mean positively? If it doesn't mean those things, what does it mean? It means that the man is not a flirt. He's not openly lustful. It means that this man is not absolute... It, that this man is and must be absolutely faithful in his marriage. And it it means that he must be devoted to his wife. Not just married, not just getting by, but devoted to her. He is a one-woman man. Now, the issue of divorce, which is so big in our day, it is because uh, the Baptists, along with a few others, have said that a man that's divorced can't be a pastor, can't be a deacon. And I would just say to you this. I'm not saying it's easy for a man who's divorced to be a pastor. It's difficult. But it's not impossible. And let me say how it's not impossible. Because it's very possible that the man has been divorced. Um, So let's say when he was 19. He's an unbeliever at the time. And he's divorced. He gets saved. And now he comes up as a, a possible elder candidate. And he openly admits, I was divorced when I was 19. I was a lost man. Many churches would say, you're disqualified while they have a man in the pulpit who's guilty of being a flirt, a lustful man, and is not faithful to his wife. But he has never been divorced, so therefore he stits to preach. Okay, It's just not that simple. This is a sticky issue, isn't it? 
And I would say this is an issue for the local body to determine. Is he above reproach? He may be divorced and not be above reproach because of his divorce, so he'd be disqualified. But he may be divorced and above reproach, therefore he would be qualified. It's not black and white. It's not black and white. This is a difficult issue. It must be addressed at a local level. And Paul is, I think, in line or would would agree that this is the call. He's not only to uh, be a family man with his wife, but he also is to be a, a leader of his children. And so if we look here, the children are to be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. He must be true and he must be the unquestionable leader of his home. First Timothy 3 says, if a man can't lead his own home, shepherd his own flock, how can he shepherd the household of God? First Timothy 3, verses 4 through 5. The church is a family. Therefore, if this elder seeks to lead this family, he has to lead his little family very well. He, uh, two thoughts here quickly. Um, after much study and prayer, it's my conviction that this Titus standard is for older children. They must be believers. And I say that uh, with all humility. They must be believers. If a man cannot be an example to his own children and call them to righteousness and then be saved under his constant teaching in their lives, how would he ever be an example of evangelism to the community and to his church? This is for older children. Timothy gets the younger children qualification. I want you to compare the two. Go to look at Titus 1 6 and then go to 1 Timothy 3 4 through 5. And it's a different way he words it. And I believe it is for the younger children in a man's home. I have young children right now in my home. And they fall under this category. Not he 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 must be uh, he must manage his own household well, verse 4, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Not saved, but submissive. For if, someone, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's household? So in this stage of my life, I'm qualified. My, my children are submissive. Well, when they're 16 and they're still unbelievers and they've rebelled against the faith, I may be disqualified. This is a serious issue. Many men have served the church while their family went to hell. And God wouldn't have it be that way. He would say, step aside from the pulpit. Step aside from the ministry and love your family and pray that they go faithfully into the church and be saved. And you say, well, the sovereignty of God is in control of who's saved and who's not. Yes, I know. But this man is a leader. He is a model. And if his children are not regenerate, he struggles to be a model. And I say it is a high standard, and it's one that can lead to much debate, but I think it's without debate once you study hard this passage under much prayer. Debauchery. That means they're not given to rioting or uh, being prodigals. They're not insubordinate, which means they're not rebellious. They're not unwilling to submit to authority. So that's the family requirements. Moral standards. He can't be arrogant means he's not overbearing. He's not one who pleases himself. He's not quick-tempered. That does not, he does not flare up at others, flash in his temper towards other people. 
not a drunkard. It's another controversial thing. That, that, that word there means overindulgent. It does not mean teetotaler. It doesn't mean that. That wasn't the standard. And it's not should not be our standard. You say, well, everybody be a drunk. Well, then he won't be qualified any longer. He'll be disqualified. But I want to uh, give a caution here. Because so many times in our day, we look at overindulgence of alcohol and disqualify a man, yet a man can be overindulgent in food and a glutton and be qualified. He might be overindulgent in many areas and not drink, and therefore we let him preach. But his overindulgence is a sin, no matter what the thing he's overindulgent is. Now, am I recommending to you drink and strong drink? No, I'm not. I'm saying we can't disqualify a man based on that. Okay? There may be many good reasons for you not to drink, but that does not require that you put that belief ahead of the qualifications of Scripture, which is don't be a drunk. Don't be overindulgent. Not violent. He can't be a striker, somebody that hits uh, his opponents. Not greedy for gain. Not taking advantage of people for money. That's the idea here. It's not that he can't enjoy having a paycheck. I mean, everybody needs to eat, right? The best example of this was given to me just this week, just yesterday, at a wedding. This elderly lady, Miss Reason, her husband uh, was a pastor for many years, bivocational. He was challenged one time. He was kind of looked down on because he was a painter, and he was wearing his painter's outfit. And he met this man. The guy said, I thought you were a preacher. Here you are dressed like a painter. He humbly said this, and this is this, is this verse. He said, I paint for a living and I preach for the Lord. That should be the man's attitude whether he's paid or not paid for the ministry. I preach for the Lord. If the people deem that, I should be paid, great. And if they know, then I'll get a job and keep preaching. Shouldn't be greedy for money. Shouldn't be twisting everybody's arm to get a little more and get a little more and get a little more. So he's, these are the five negatives and we get to the positives. He has to be hospitable, open in home and open in heart. This is the direct opposite of arrogance. He's open to everyone. He has them in his home openly. Pastors that don't have people in their homes are in danger. And he should be an example. Having people to his home and people out of his home, Christians and non-Christians, missionaries and pastors and workers and, and just his congregation, his neighbors should be in his home. And he shows his openness. He has to be a lover of good, virtuous. He's virtuous and he promotes virtue in other people. Galatians 5.22 lists the fifth thing, fruit of the Spirit, is goodness. A pastor must have goodness. It shows the spiritual quality that's in his life. We're not good lest the Spirit be in us. And so if a man shows virtue and goodness, it can only come from God. Self-controlled. He has to be above impulse. That's a tough one, isn't it? Paul's so hard. Upright. He is to live according to God's law. Holy. He has to be committed to godliness. Disciplined. He has to be an athlete in training. Now I use that because Paul uses the athlete term. He says, buffet your body. Discipline yourselves. Run with endurance. All these athletic terms. Discipline. Can I just say this? Discipline doesn't come naturally for me. If you know me, you know that. 
okay? And I can show you some areas. Matter of fact, if you want to see where I'm struggling, one area I'm struggling, come with me to my car after we leave here. I hadn't mastered it yet. That place is junky. I thought about it on the way up here. I thought, boy, if they come look at my car, I'm out. And I say that a little in jest, but I'm going to tell you something. I have to work hard at discipline. It doesn't come naturally. I'm naturally creative and kind of an artist, and I just want to kind of float through life. My waistline can start to look that way if I'm not careful, and my yard can look that way, and my car can look that way, and my house can look that way. And when you start seeing those things, you need to lovingly just ask me how I'm doing. How is it with you, Pastor? Can I help you with something? Got a lot on your plate. Hadn't gotten around to these things. And I don't say that jokingly. And then you should say, how's your study going? Because I want to tell you something. A dark secret in the ministry. When they tell you they can be undisciplined everywhere and be disciplined in the study, I've yet to see it. Undisciplined is undisciplined. If a man's not fighting to be disciplined in his life under the control of the Spirit in one area, it's probably all areas. And so it's not easy and it's not natural. But when you see a man struggling to gain these characteristics, under the grace of God, he may at some point attain it. And it will be a praise to God, not to him. These These things are... Traits of a man submitted to Christ and his spirit. And that's why he's qualified for spiritual leadership. Summary of the message. Everybody seemed to love this last week. Leadership that is biblical must be known for moral character, godly virtue, and committed family practice. Because we are fallen men leading other fallen men. Biblical leadership should be shared among the qualified men of the church. I think that's what Paul's saying in verses 5 through 8. That's what he's saying 5 through 9. I didn't get to 9 this week. I didn't forget it. It's a message to itself. But I will give you a little taste of next week's message this week as we close. Notice I've said nothing at all whatsoever about organizational ability, administrative talent, promotional and uh, salesmanship ability. I've said nothing to you about being a CEO or, uh, or the like. Not even talked really about leadership, have I? I mean, I've talked about it, but not as a quality, really. And you may say, well, what about that? When are we going to get there? The Bible never goes there. I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm just saying they're not the standard. When you look for a pastor, you're in the wrong boat when you're looking for somebody who meets the worldly standards. Give me a man who lacks administrative ability, who lacks, you know, intellect, who lacks uh, slick uh, persona and charisma. Give me a man that has none of those things but is committed to the Word of God and lives a Christ-like life in front of his men and women in his church and his community, and I'll show you a man who God will take and make into a great weapon in the kingdom of God. 
And everyone will say praise to Christ, not praise to that man. May we never move away from the biblical standards. And may we never select leaders based on the world's standards instead of God's. This is crucial. And it's something. one last thing you may have noticed. Read through it this afternoon. You ought to be meeting these standards too. There's nothing super ordinary about these men, is there? They're just Christians. They just look like Christians. So up until this point, five through six, eight, we've said nothing about talent or ability to teach or any of that. We focused on things that ought to be true of every person in this congregation. And next week we'll see what sets apart a leader, an elder, a teacher. There's only one qualification for that. The other qualifications are qualities of a Christian man. Let's pray. Father, you will have to raise up leaders among us. You will have to make (laughs) elders. You'll have to do it, God, because it's not our nature. We are sinful, fallen creatures who do not seek after Christ's likeness. I don't. These men in this room don't. And it's arrogant of us to believe that we do. There's no one in this room above what you've laid down in your word as qualifications for elders. There's no man above it. And there's no man so far down he could never be this by your grace. Because Paul was the chief of sinners and you saved him and made him an elder in the church, an apostle and a founder of so many congregations. Lord, there's someone in this room now that is the next great elder of the church. And it's not because of who he is, it's because of who you are. So God, I'm asking you to call these men out. And I pray the day comes where we're just overrun with men who are elders here at Grace Fellowship. Because that will be a glory and honor to you, not to us. And the community might look and say, something strange is about that group. I want to know this Christ that they speak of so openly. Oh Jesus, glorify yourself in us. Because, Lord, we are so low and minuscule that we are able to reflect your glory. It's only your glory. It's all for your glory. And it is in your great name we pray. Amen.